Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Ephesians in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 1. In your Bibles today, Ephesians chapter 1. I'm excited. We're starting a new series on Sunday morning. We'll study through the book of Ephesians. There are only six chapters in this book. It's not very long, um, but it's one of many of the epistles that the Apostle Paul, uh, God gave to him and were penned down and then were given to local churches. And it really is an incredible, incredible letter. I, think it's, I know it's going to be a great blessing to your heart, and it's going to be an encouragement to you. It's, the first three chapters are doctrinally rich. It's all about who Christ is and what he's done for you and for me, the riches that you and I have in Christ. And then the last three chapters of the book are application of the doctrine that he gave to us in the first three chapters, the, the doctrine that... Uh, or the application like um, what a, how a husband should treat his wife, and how a wife should interact with her husband, and, and what a church member should act like, and, and how they should behave, and how they should serve. And it's just about practical Christian living. Uh, and so I can emphasize to you this morning, the first three chapters are incredibly rich doctrinally, but without them... The things that the Apostle Paul and the Spirit of God are going to ask us and challenge us to do in the application at the back, without the doctrinal basis, it's kind of overwhelming. But after we see what Christ has done for us at the beginning, what he asks at the end is completely acceptable and understandable. So it's a phenomenal book, and I'm excited to preach and teach through it. I've already enjoyed my study in it. It's challenged me. It's convicted me. And I know it's going to do the same thing for you, and I'm excited about it. Um, it was about A.D. 60, early 60s, A.D. 60, not 1960, but A.D. 60. So we're going back quite a ways. And um, under house arrest, a man received messages from God, multiple messages while he was under house arrest there in Rome. In fact, four of them specifically And uh, those messages, those letters, the words that God gave to that man, he had them penned down, and then he gave them to four different messengers. Now, remember, the messages came to him from God while he was in Rome, under house arrest in prison. He, He has them penned down, and then he gives them to four different messengers who took those four letters to four different places. If the Roman government had had any idea of what was taking place, I'm sure that they would have confiscated those letters or tried to do so. And if those original letters existed today, they would be of incredible value. They would be placed in a museum somewhere and people would come from around the world to look at them. And really, they would be almost invaluable. They would be incredibly valuable. And the letters I'm talking to you about are the church uh, letters, or at least a few of them, that Paul penned down that God gave to him there in the early 80s, This one specifically to the Ephesians, we believe, was given to Paul by God in about A.D. 64. The messengers were four different men, as I mentioned. Uh, the, 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 The first one would have been Onesimus. He was a slave who had run away from his master and and, uh, and he had, f- had met up with the Apostle Paul somewhere, we think in prison or something like that. And Paul had given him the gospel, and Onesimus had trusted Christ as his personal Savior. 
And then God gave a message to the Apostle Paul for Onesimus' master, Philemon. And, and Paul wrote it down, or had it written down, and he gave it back to Onesimus, the slave who had run away, and he said, take this message back to your master. It's the book of Philemon. Uh, another one that happened was the, the book of Philippi, and Epaphroditus the, uh, from the church at Philippi had come to visit the Apostle Paul, and Paul, the message is given, and, and, and Paul gives the message, the letter, this official letter, which is where we get the word epistle, an official letter. He gives it to uh, Epaphroditus, and Epaphroditus takes it back to Philippi. Uh, the church at Colossae, while Paul is still in prison, another man, Epaphras, had come to the Apostle Paul to talk with him. And, and God had given Paul a message for the church at Colossae. And Paul had the letter penned down, and he gave the letter to uh, Epaphras. And Epaphras took that letter from Rome all the way back to the city of Colossae, where the, his local church, the church at Colossae, was there. It's the book of Colossians. And then the fourth one would have been the letter to the church at Ephesus, or to the Ephesian believers. And, and uh, to this individual, it was Tychicus. Tychicus came to the Apostle Paul, and, and Paul had the words written down of the message that God had for these believers. And he gave that letter to Tychicus. It wouldn't have been like this, like what you and I have in our laps, like a Bible. Uh, it would have been written and, and rolled up, and, and Paul would have given that letter from God through him to the believers at Ephesus. And he gave it to Tychicus, and Tychicus took the letter, and he took it back to the church at Ephesus. And can you imagine the enthusiasm and the excitement that would have been in those churches when Tychicus returned, and he said, I have a letter from God to us. Look, look at our text, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse number 1. We're just going to look at the first three letters, or first three verses this morning, and then we'll be done. It says this, Paul... An apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints which are at Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. And then he says in verse 2, Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Really, what he says in verse number three is, you have inestimable riches in Christ. You have wealth at your disposal, the wealth of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have the riches of God, the riches of Jesus Christ at your disposal. And now he's going to talk to us about what those riches are in the first three chapters. And then in the last three chapters, he's going to say, what are you doing with them? Are you using the riches that you have in Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ, through his love for you and his sacrifice for you and, and all that he's given for you? What are you doing with those riches? So as we begin our study this morning, we're going to look at this book in its entirety, not today, but just an introduction today, okay? Just an introduction. I would encourage you as we start and as we go through this book, you might want to write some things down. Like in your Bible, it doesn't have the approximate date when this was written. But you might write with a pencil up near the, the, where it says Ephesians, you might write there A.D. 64. 
And, and I would encourage you to do that. Whenever we study a book, I'll give you some basic things, like the theme of the book, the basic theme of the book, or about when it was written, and who was the guy who wrote it down, and who it was to. And it'll help you in your Bible study, maybe even years from now, when I'm not preaching on Ephesians, and you're reading through it, and you'll say, oh, wow, it was written about this time, and this is the main theme of the book. And it can be a great help to you. I'd encourage you to do that. Let's, let's stop and let's pray and let's ask God to help us this morning as we look at this and uh, that he'll give us what he has for us this morning. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your love for us. And I thank you for this letter, this letter from you to a group of believers, the Ephesians, the believers there at Ephesus. But Lord, not just to them, but to us. This is your letter to us and Father, you want us to know what we have in Christ. Um, And you want us to know how to live with what you've given us to live that life. So, Father, I pray that you teach us as we begin our study this morning. Bless this study. We've, We've come today to hear from you and to obey you and gather together with your believers. Father, may you bless us, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, the theme of this letter... To the church, there could be a couple of them. One of them, and probably the primary theme of this book, is the Christian's riches in Christ. The believer's riches, the riches that you and I have in Jesus Christ. If I were to ask you this morning, what is it that you have by Jesus Christ? What is it that Christ has provided for you that you have in Christ? What would you say? How would you answer that? Many of us would say, well, well, he saved me from my sin. Um, he died for me on the cross, and he took my sins upon his body, you might say. And, and because he died for me, uh, and, he, and he rose again, I live today, and I'm alive, and I've been forgiven of my sin. And there's a lot of things we could talk about. I think the, the believers at Ephesus knew that they were saved. And I think that they, well, I know that they believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and they believed that he, had, he was God in human flesh, and he had been crucified and buried and risen again. They believed those things, but there was a lot of things the church at Ephesus didn't know. And there was a lot of things that Christ had provided for them that they were ignorant of. They didn't know, they didn't understand. And so this letter from God, by the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, to the church at Ephesus, was God saying, there's some things you need to know about what Jesus Christ has provided for you. And and, and throughout the book, he's going to talk about the riches of Christ that that are yours and mine. And we need to to understand those. A a secondary theme might be this, to the praise of his glory. All that he talks about in this letter, uh, what Jesus Christ did for us in saving our souls, all of the riches that he bestows upon us, and and the ability to walk and live a life different than we used to live. Remember, we used to be slaves to sin. We couldn't do anything else but serve sin. But then he saved us to, to serve the Lord. All that he has done for us is to the praise of his glory. It it is to the praise of his glory. And he says it repeatedly, even in chapter 1. He talks about to the praise of his glory. And that's the statement that we find in our passage. Uh, 
the theme verse for our study, I've chosen one, is chapter 3. And you look there with me, would you? Chapter 3 in Ephesians, in verse 20 and 21. Two, two verses put together, kind of the theme for our study would be this. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21 say this. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him, that's Jesus Christ, or God, be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Unto uh, unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly, above all that we ask or think. You know, we, probably there are many of us this morning in the, in the auditorium, that we have ideas of what we'd like to see accomplished. We, we look at our property, where we live, our house, and you probably could take me through your house and say, yeah, this is this way, but we want it to be this way. And maybe your yard, you know, this is the way it is, but really our goal is this. I have a pool in the backyard in the house we purchased about a year ago, and it's, uh, it could be called Seth's Pool. It, it kind of has that look, a Seth's Pool, you know, okay. And, uh, and it's an in-ground pool. It's 18 by 36. It's a, it's a nice, well, it might have been a nice pool at some point. It's not a nice pool now. We bought it that way. We knew that. It was as is. and You know, the coping's all broken out, and the concrete's heaved and cracked. And it holds water. That's the one thing I can say for it. It holds water. And the water's green and brown. We, we've, I, we had hundreds and hundreds of tadpoles in that pool. My kids love it. I mean, it's great. I mean, it's a habitat. Now, we, they would catch a frog in the yard, and I'd say, let the frog go. Olivia loves frogs. Little curly blonde, you know, beautiful little. And she loves frogs. She loves snuggling with them. And, it's awful. It really is. It's awful. My wife and I are like, ah, oh, stop touching, you know, the frog and stop kissing the frog. It's just, but she loves the frog. Like, love it to death would apply to her, okay? She loves the frog. And, uh, and so I would jokingly tell her, why don't you let the frog go in the pool so it can live free and in the wild? Okay, that's the pool. It's free and in the wild. Turtles, we've had all kinds of things in that pool. Um, I've gotten rid of most of them at this point because we're getting ready to change the way the pool is. But we could look at the pool and say, this is what it is. But this is what we'd like it to be. Now, we could talk about our lives, our individual lives like that, couldn't we? We could look at our lives, take inventory of our lives and say, this is who I am. But, but I hope, my hope is in, in years to come that I'll be different than I am now. You, there, you probably could say that. There's some things in your life that you do now that... You're, you're a little ashamed of, and, and, and you've seen some great strides in your life. God's changing your life, and that's to the praise of his glory. But you could even be honest this morning and say, you know, but still, there are a few things in my life that aren't what they should be. And, and so, Pastor, I really would like to see myself over here, closer to God, walking more disciplined in my life, more, more joyful, less complaining, uh, slower to anger quicker to give praise to God. We could all talk like that. And, uh, and, and Paul is going to address that in this passage. He's going to say, these are the riches you have in Christ, and this is how you can live. This is how you can live. It really is, I could say it this way, kind of a goosebump thought. 
It really is an amazing book, and, and, uh, and we're going to be excited. But they're above all that we can ask or think. We can't, even, we can't even imagine all that God can do and accomplish in our lives. It's, more, it's, for, it's, it's beyond our, even, our wildest dream. It's beyond even what we can even ask for. We're not even, we're not even, we, can't even, we can't even comprehend it to the point where we don't even ask for it. And that's who the God is of the Bible and the mess, who the message is from here in Ephesians. Now, I want to go through, and again, this morning is a very foundational message, but it's so important for me to give you this information, okay? I'm really looking forward to next week, okay? Just between you and me. And I'm looking forward to the end because we're going to get into it a little bit more this morning. In fact, uh, this week I was, I don't know, I was looking at it and I was saying, you know, I really want to go to chapter, uh, verse 4 and get on with it. But I feel like we need, to, we need to touch base first on the first three verses. So uh, who penned down this message? Or who, 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 who did God give this message to? Well, notice verse number one again. It says Paul. Uh, Paul does this. He introduces himself. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Th- that's who God gave the message to, the apostle Paul. And uh, God used uh, men throughout his word to pen down the Bible. Uh, Peter talked about that, that God used holy men, men who were right with him. They weren't always perfect, but they were right with him at that time in their lives. And God gave them his message, and they penned down the message that he had for you and for me. And so the man that God used to uh, give this message to, the man who God gave this message to, was actually a man who had at one time opposed Christianity. Completely. He had opposed Christ. Did you know that about Paul? Many of you do, and this is review, but for some of you, maybe you've never heard of this. Paul used to have a different name. His name was Saul. It used to be Saul. And Saul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was a brilliant, intellectual individual. And he was incredibly zealous. He was very dedicated. The Bible says he was a Pharisee. Uh, a, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. In other words, you couldn't hardly get any higher than him. But he was very zealous for the Jewish religion. And he hated Christians. He hated them. So much so that Saul of Tarsus used to persecute them. Now you say, well, wait a minute, I'm getting a little confused here. I thought you said this is the guy God gave the message to and, and, and about all these wonderful riches that God has for his children, born-again believers. And the answer to that is yes, that's who it is. But before he was saved, his name was Saul, and he, was actually, uh, he actually persecuted the church. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 13 says this, and Paul writing there too, he says, For ye have heard of my conversation, which means my manner of life, the way I lived in time past, in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it. That's who this guy used to be. And profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in mine own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. He hated Christianity. He wanted nothing to do with them. Look with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 in your Bibles. And we're going to come back to Ephesians chapter 1 in just a moment. But in Acts chapter 9, let me read to you a little bit about this man Saul before he became Paul. 
because there came a day in Saul's life where he was confronted with the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he was born again. He was saved. Like many of us would say, we're saved this morning. Uh, and actually, when he, when he had that confrontation, or when he, when he came to know Jesus Christ as his personal Savior, he was on a trip. He was on a road called the Road to Damascus. And on that road, I should tell you why he was on that road. He was on that road on the trip to persecute believers, to throw them in prison. In other words, if Saul of Tarsus, if, if Trinity Baptist Church had been living back, existed back in that time, we would be meeting and gathering around the word of God, and we'd be rejoicing in our salvation, and, and, and then we might hear message or word would come to us, Saul is, is after Trinity Baptist Church. He's going to start coming to our houses. And he's going to bring accusations against us, and he's going to throw us in prison and even kill some of us. I mean, that's who this guy was. Look at Acts chapter 9 and verse 1. Acts 9 and verse 1 says, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, that, that's what he used to do, went unto the high priest, and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, any who believed upon Christ, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven, and he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, Saul, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. Now, I'm not going to go on any further in this passage, but Saul of Tarsus is confronted with the truth, the reality that Jesus Christ is God, that Jesus Christ is the promised one, the Messiah, the one who'd been promised to Israel. And up to that point, Saul of Tarsus had rejected Jesus Christ as the Messiah, but at this point in his life, he comes to a belief that Jesus Christ is Lord, and he is the Messiah. Well, God then called Paul to take the gospel to Gentiles, and, and Paul's writing this letter in Ephesians from a Roman prison. And even though Paul was on trial for his life, his main concern was for the spiritual health of the churches. That's love, isn't it? When you have somebody who, they're on trial for their life, this man has been wrongfully accused in some ways, and, and, and the law is set against him, and he's in prison, he's under house arrest, so he had some freedom. He could write, and he could, visitors could come and visit with him, but, but there he is in prison, and, and, um, and he's on trial for his life, and yet he's more concerned about the believers that he's led to the Lord. He's more concerned for you and for me if, if he were living today. That's where his concern would have been. I wonder how the church at Trinity is doing, uh, or in Flushing. I wonder how Trinity Baptist is doing. I wonder how Pastor Ferguson's doing. I wonder how the deacons are doing. I wonder how the church members are doing. Do they know what they have in Christ? I, I know they're under attack. I know that they're being tempted. I know that society is going the other way. I wonder how they're doing. And there he is on trial for his life. And he's concerned for these believers. He was an apostle. He had an obligation to teach the word of God to believers. 
and to, and to help them in the faith. Now, look at, at chapter 4 very quickly in Ephesians, chapter 4 and verse 11. Chapter 4 and verse 11. It says, and he, uh, he is Christ, and Christ gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints. The word perfecting means maturing, to help us grow for the work of the ministry, for the edifying, the building up of the body of Christ. You know that God gave apostles like the Apostle Paul. You see it in chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, he says, an apostle of Jesus Christ. By the will of God, not by his own will, but because God had chosen him. And Paul understood that his responsibility was to give the word of God to God's people so that those people would grow in the truth and that they would become mature and strong believers. Not tossed about with every wind of doctrine. Not, not tossed about with every adverse circumstance that came into their lives. He, Paul's mission was to help them grow to be mature. And that's the role of a pastor. That was the role of the prophets. That's a role of an, it was the role of an apostle. And it's the role of an evangelist. So, Paul was the one God gave the message to. Secondly, I noticed this morning, I want to notice the destination of the letter. The destination of the letter. Look in verse 1 again. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus. Now, where are we right now? We're at Flushing. That's where we're at. Um, They were at Ephesus. That, that's, where this, that's where these believers live. They, they might have been some that lived in, in the surrounding areas like we have here at Trinity Baptist. Transportation wasn't, uh, back then wasn't like it is today. But the destination of the letter was to a place, a city named Ephesus. There were about 300,000 citizens of the city of Ephesus at that time. Anybody know of roughly how many citizens are in Flint about this time? Any, anybody have an idea? It's a little less than 100,000. At this point, uh, Flint at its heyday was about what, 200,000, something like that, when, when everything was booming? Well, Ephesus was about 300,000 people. Ephesus had an amphitheater, an amphitheater that would sit 50,000 people, and they would have plays, and they would have shows, and they would have 50,000 people in the, in the stadium or the amphitheater to watch. Um, Ford Field, I don't know what it seats, 50,000 or 60,000, something like that. But it was, it's a big place, and, and the amphitheater was a big place. This was a happening place. The city at Ephesus was a large port city off of the Aegean Sea, and it was the home of a much idol worship. It was, they had a temple called the Temple of Artemis. Others called it the Temple of Diana. And uh, it, was, it, it worked kind of like a bank in some ways. Uh, historians record how the Temple of Artemis had a vast collections of art, kind of like a museum. You could go and you could see the different artwork that was there. It was one of the seven, it's considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And uh, the Temple of Artemis, or, or Diana, was the pagan goddess of fertility. And really the Temple of Diana had thousands, and I'm careful here, but thousands of prostitutes And it was known for its immorality. And I I could read to you that the city hated Paul. In fact, let's look there just for a moment in Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. And we can actually read 
about Paul being at this city. Acts chapter 19. We'll read about the city of Ephesus and how they responded to the Apostle Paul. In Acts chapter 19, we find Paul on his third missionary journey. It's about A.D. 55. So only about eight years before he pens down the message to the Ephesians that we're studying. Uh, uh, Notice there, Acts chapter 19, in verse number 18. It says this, and Paul's preaching, and it says, And many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. Verse 19, Many of them also which used curious arts brought their books together, uh, those would have been like occult-type books, and burned them before all men, and they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So Paul's preaching the gospel. People are getting saved so much so that they're getting rid of their old idolatrous pagan books to the total of uh, 50,000 pieces of silver, so worth of books. Can you imagine that, getting saved? and giving up something that cost you so much, something that you used to value so much, and you got saved so much so, I mean, truly born again, indwelt by the Spirit of God, saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, that your life was changed so much that you said, you know what, these things that I used to love so much, they need to be burned because they're actually so destructive, these occult-like, satanic-type books. Well, notice what happens in verse number 23. We're still in Acts of the city. Verse 24. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, which made silver shrines or silver idols for Diana, brought no small gain unto the craftsmen. In other words, there's this idol worship in Ephesus, and if you were going to be in the inn in Ephesus at that time, you got uh, Diana... Uh, the temple of Diana and, and the idol worship that took place in the temple and the temple of Artemis there, that was going to be a part of your life. And everybody had like their personal little idol of Diana, you know, for your house. And if you didn't have it, then you would have been kind of, you would have been a little odd. You wouldn't have been normal. So it, this was something everybody had. Well, can you imagine what that, what kind of industry there was for that? If everybody has to have one, there's about 300,000 people. I don't know how many houses, but if every home needs a, an idol, well, somebody's got to make it and, and somebody's got to sell it, and that means money, right? Well, you know, Paul's preaching the gospel, and people are turning away from their idolatry, and they're saying, hey, we don't need these idols anymore. We don't need to buy these idols anymore. And guess what? It was hurting the economy. And Demetrius, a silversmith who's making these things, He gathers a bunch of people together in verse 25. It says, whom he called together with the workmen of like occupation. And he said, sirs, ye know. Hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods which are made with hands. Paul had been preaching. If you're worshiping something that's made by human hands, it's not a god. I'm sorry. It's not worth worshiping if it can be made by a human being. And and Demetrius understood this, verse 27, he continues, so that not only this, our craft is in danger to be set at naught, we're going to go out of business, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worshipeth. He says, this man Paul is preaching the gospel so much so, and so many people are getting saved that people are turning away from idolatry. 
Amen to that, we could say. Verse 28, And when they heard these sayings, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And the whole city was filled with confusion. There's rioting going on in Ephesus because of Paul preaching that Jesus Christ is God, that he died on the cross to bear your sins. And if you will believe upon him, he is faithful to forgive you of your sins. And he didn't just die, but he rose again. And in that he lives, you live too. And you can be saved and you don't need any false God to depend upon. You can trust in God alone and worship God alone. And and people were being saved. A church was being birthed. It was being born there in Ephesus. But the city was frustrated. So they go to the the leadership of the city and the leadership says, Paul, you got to go. And you're not welcome to return anymore. But Paul had been there for about almost three years. And the church at Ephesus had been started. So uh, this is just a little bit of background on this city. You can look back with me to Ephesians chapter 1. So now Paul had been forced to leave that city. And Paul had visited Ephesus uh, twice uh, on his second missionary journey in about AD 53. And then on his third missionary journey in about AD 55. Again, only eight years before this letter was, was, was written. And uh, Paul had stayed with the church again for about three years, and he had preached the word of God so powerfully that in Acts chapter 19, in verse 10, the latter part, it says this, that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. That's amazing. Everybody heard the gospel. And so, so many were people were getting saved. There, so many were turning away from idols that the politicians say, Paul, get out of town. So, so the message, uh, Paul is the recipient of the message. He's, he's the one who God gave the message to. He has it written down. And, and he sends it to Ephesus. Well, who is the primary recipient of the message? Look at again, verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints... Those are the recipients, the saints, which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, the words in Christ are found some 27 times in this small epistle. In this small letter, Paul emphasizes you are in Christ. You're in Christ. And I could ask you this morning, do you understand, if you're a born-again child of God, that you are in Christ? That's something we'll explore as we go along. What does it mean? We'll explore that. But these believers, they're saints. He calls them here saints and faithful. They're one and the same individuals. They're saints. They're faithful. So the primary uh, recipient of the letter there at Ephesus are the saints in Ephesus. The faithful believers in Ephesus. Uh, Paul calls them saints. So the church was made up of saints. Now what's a saint? If you look it up in the dictionary, you'll find, oftentimes defined in the dictionary, saints will be defined as someone... Uh, who has achieved some level of holiness and that a board of some kind or a council of some kind has declared them a saint. But that's not a biblical definition of the word saint. What's a saint? Um, I mean, isn't a saint somebody who's dead? Well, not biblically. A saint is someone someone who is saved. Uh, Are you saved? Uh, your, husband, your wife might look at you and say, you're no saint. <laughs> uh, well, saints are someone who's born again. They're saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, is it possible for a saint to sin? Yes. 
Okay. Should we sin? No. Do we sin? Yes. But, but saints are someone who's born again. Uh, the word saint is really, really grotesquely uh, misunderstood, I think, in our day and age, thanks in large part to the Rome, Roman Catholic Church, uh, where, where to be a saint, to be declared a saint, you have to be dead. Um, you have to have done at least two miracles, and uh, you have to have lived a life of a certain level where everybody who lived at that time said the same thing about you, that you were a pretty wonderful person. And then after you've died, the council can declare you a saint. It's called canonization. Um, but that's not a biblical de- definition of being a saint. The word saint means someone who is set apart. Um, it means set apart from doing what the world does, what we used to do. Set apart unto doing what God desires for us to do. You see, when a sinner trusts Jesus Christ to save him from sin and death and hell to come, that person is placed into Christ, his holiness, his righteousness, and God declares that person to be a saint. They are no longer a slave to sin, unable to obey God, only able to obey sin, only able to serve sin. But when someone is saved, when they are placed into Christ, they are empowered by the Holy Spirit to live unto the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether therefore ye eat or drink, or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory, do all to the honor of God. When I speak, what I speak should bring God honor. How I treat my wife should bring God honor. How I train up my kids should bring God honor. How I interact with God's people within the local church should bring God honor. Should bring God glory. Nine times in this short letter, Paul calls these believers saints. Now again, it's not that they were any more holy than you if you're a born-again child of God. Uh, And he he calls them faithful, too, there in that passage. How many of you, and don't raise your hand, but how many of you could say, Pastor, I'm faithful when it comes to being a believer. I'm faithful. really is an amazing word, that word faithful, full of faith. Somebody who can be counted on to do the right thing. Proverbs talks about uh, having a servant or, or, or uh, somebody working for you who's not faithful, who you can't depend upon, and how it's like having a foot out of joint, a bone out of, of uh, uh, a joint that's come apart. Have you ever had that happen? It's incredibly painful, and you, you have to get it back in joint, and then it's not quite right for a while. Uh, somebody who's faithful. A saint is simply someone who has trusted Jesus Christ to save them from death and hell and sin today. A saint is someone who used to be dead, a slave to sin, but now is alive, not just physically, but spiritually. And they're able to serve God. In chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. But now you're alive. Now you're alive. See, to be made spiritually alive, you have to be born again spiritually. These believers were faithful. You know, there really is no higher compliment in the Bible than to be called faithful. Hebrews chapter 11 is called the hall of faith. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6 tells us that without faith, without taking God at his word, 
it's impossible to please God. Faithfulness is something that you and I ought to strive for. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 2, it says, Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. In Matthew, or excuse me, Mark chapter 25 and verse number 23, uh, Jesus was giving a parable and he said, His Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. You see, a faithful servant of God is someone who knows what God says and does what God says. Do you know what God says in his word? Do you know what his word says? Do you know what his will is? Sometimes, for some of us in this room, we might not know what God's will is. What does God want me to do here in this area of my life? What is God's will for for me and, and, and with my kids? What is God's will for us as a church? Some of us may not know the will of God. We have to get into the word of God and find out what his will is so so that we can do it. You see, a faithful servant is someone who knows what the will of his master is and who does what his master says. A faithful person knows what to do and does it. So what's the message of this epistle? And and we'll be done. I'm just going to summarize it, and we're going to be done this morning. We've seen who, who, who God gave the message to, Paul. We've seen, we've seen this, the destination of the letter is Ephesus. And keep that in your mind. This is a wicked city that, that this church was in. We, we can look around at our society today and say, you know, wow, our society is really messed up. I don't know. Uh, there's always been wickedness in, in the world. Um, but yeah, there are some things that aren't right in our world today. And we could say, wow, we really got it bad. But you know what? We, we weren't in the city of Ephesus. It was a unique place. And, and Paul got run out of Ephesus. And then, and then we've seen these other things about who, the, who, were the, who were the people that received the message. Well, they were saints. They were faithful believers. We ought to be able to be that as well. So what, what's the message? Well, notice in verse number two, it says this. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. That's, that's, the, message, that's the message of this epistle. Paul, as he writes to them, right up front in verse number 3, says this, I want you to know that you have been blessed through Jesus Christ by the will of God the Father, God has given some things to you that are incredible. They're they're in the heavenlies. They're they're vast in resource and riches. God's wealth is your wealth. And and I'm talking about spiritual things. I'm, I'm talking about a wealth, the wealth of Jesus Christ, the riches of Christ, the power of the Spirit of God in you. The ability not to sin anymore. To have victory over sin. It's not that you never will sin, but to have victory over it. And and this is how it's possible. Paul was, in this epistle, introducing really a new concept to these believers. It was one that to some of us may be somewhat familiar, but to them this was completely foreign. They had no idea about this. 
They knew about Jesus Christ. They knew that their salvation was in him. But Paul wanted them to know that they were in Christ. They were his body. They were his building. They were his bride. The first half of the book, as I've mentioned in chapters 1 through 3, is about our spiritual wealth. It's about our position as believers. It's about how God sees us. It's about our privilege. It's about the blessings of being a Christian. It's about the work of Christ in us and how he's working in us. It's very doctrinal. But in the second half, chapters 4, 5, and 6, the book emphasizes the truths of the first half applied to our lives. In other words, the emphasis is not on our spiritual wealth in the second half, but on our spiritual walk. Not the position that we have in Christ, but the practice of believers. Not how God sees us, but how the world should see us. Not our privilege, but our practice. Not Christian blessings, but Christian behavior. And not the work of Christ in us, but the work of Christ through us. This is, this is very practical. This is every day. This is you going into the shop. This is you going into the school. This is you interacting with your spouse. This is how to interact with our neighbors. This is how we should be the church, how to be a church that God wants us to be. Really, the first half of the book of Ephesians is all about Jesus Christ. And if you and I can get a right view of Jesus Christ, what he's done for us, how much he loves us, and what you and I have in him, then whatever it is, whatever instruction he has for us in the second half of the book is completely acceptable, completely understandable. It makes total sense that he should ask of me, Seth, this is how you should be parenting. This is the kind of husband you should be based upon what I have done for you. And not just what I have done for you, but what you have, what I've given you to do what I'm asking you to do. Have you ever been, have you ever been given a job or a task to do by your employer or, or maybe a coworker that you work with and they gave you a task to do and you didn't feel equipped to do it? Have you ever been there? And you're like, thanks. You know, you gave me this because you don't know what to do. (laughs) And you haven't told me how to do it. You haven't given me the tools to do the job. I don't have the tools. I don't have the knowledge. I don't have the experience. Have you ever ever felt that way? Sometimes we feel like that as a believer. God says, be ye holy, for I am holy. And we go, okay, that's a nice verse. We know you're holy, but we know us. And we we kind of feel like, I don't don't think I can. And see, the second half, based upon, the first half is all about the riches that we have in Christ. In other words, I don't have to worry. No matter the circumstance I'm faced with. Because of the riches I have in Christ. And we're going to explore those riches. You're facing a situation, you say, this this is insurmountable. But you know what? It is surmountable because of the riches we have in Christ. You say, I'm not, I'm not who I ought to be based upon the word of God. And Seth, it's so discouraging to me. Sometimes we get in that mindset. You know, I, I just kind of, I'm doing my best, but you know what? It's, it's one big failure. And, and Paul's telling these believers, and the Spirit of God wants them, wanted them to know, and he wants you and I to know, that what I'm asking you to do is doable because of the riches of Christ that I've given to you. 
In our society today, most people don't act their financial wage. By that, by that I mean they spend more than they should. They spend more than they have. Um, they just go through life and, and spend whatever, they, whatever credit card they can get, run it up to its max, and then hopefully somebody else will give them another one. Of course, there's always somebody who will, right? And the interest rate's like, and they know, they know they're going to get every penny out of you they possibly can. And, and we're supposed to spend our wage. Don't spend more than you have. Sometimes other people, there's, a, there's another group of people, there are not as many of these kind of people, but there are other group of people that tend to not spend at all. They save. And they save and they save, and maybe they invest and they save, and they make good choices, and they accumulate wealth. They give, but they, they're able to accumulate wealth. They, they save a lot. We, someone might say, well, they hoard it. They're stingy. Whatever, okay, but they save. Um, I want to give an illustration as we close this morning, and you might have heard of this person. Her name was Mrs. Hetty Green, and she lived from about 1834, 1835 to 1916, uh, during the Gilded Age, and she was an incredibly brilliant woman. She really was, but they called her, they had a nickname for her uh, on Wall Street, and they called her, you ready for this? It's not flattering. They called her the Witch of Wall Street. Um, That's not flattering at all. But she really was a very brilliant woman. At that time, it it said that she was the most wealthy woman in America during that period of time. I want to read to you some things about Mrs. Hetty Green. Uh, Again, she was a businesswoman. She was an investor. She was a financier. She was known as the wealthiest woman in America. By the time Hetty was 30 years old, she had inherited large sums of money, uh, the equivalent of about $100 million million in today's dollars. By the time she was 30, I won't ask any of you if you've inherited that. She really, again, was a brilliant businesswoman, but Hetty Green was known for her stinginess. Really, it was legendary at that time. The, The newspapers would write articles about her. It was said that she wouldn't turn on the heat in her apartment to save money. She wouldn't use hot water. She wouldn't, didn't want to pay to heat it. So she, she wouldn't have hot water. It was said that she would wear the same black dress and the same undergarments until they would wear out. And only then, the newspapers would write that she smelled because she wouldn't bathe. Okay, because she didn't want to spend money on soap. Another report claimed that she instructed her laundress to only use soap when washing her garments, only use soap on the dirtiest parts of the garment to save money. Rumors claimed that she only ate oatmeal that she would heat on the radiator at the office with the other financiers, okay? So she wasn't having really to pay for that heat. Her business was real estate, railroads, mines, mortgages, and she was extremely successful. She had all the money anyone during that time could possibly want, but she lived like a pauper. It was said that she would move often to avoid the tax collectors. When her only son, Ned, broke his leg as a child, it is said that she refused to pay, to go to a doctor she had to pay. And so she would go, her son had had a leg that was broken, she began to look throughout the city to find a doctor who ministered to the poor, who didn't charge. But they recognized her. 
And she wouldn't pay, and she would leave them, and she'd go try to find another doctor. It said that she waited so long that her son's leg had to be amputated. By the time of her death, it is estimated that she was worth over $2.2 billion in today's currency. She had every provision necessary for living, to heat her water, to buy soap, to take her son to the doctor and pay for it. But she didn't use it. Sadly, I think, many believers today live like Hetty Green. We have all the provisions that we need in Christ. Everything that we need. But we live spiritually like we're a pauper. We live defeated lives sometimes. We live still living in the world. But Christ has provided everything we need to deliver us. You see, when Jesus Christ died on the cross and he rose again... He didn't just purchase your salvation and my salvation from death and hell. He provided for us everything that we need to live lives that bring glory and honor to God. We shouldn't save what God has given us to spend. We shouldn't bury it for later. We shouldn't ignore it like it doesn't exist. What God has provided us with is meant to be spent. God has given us what we need because we need it. Our creator knows our needs, and he's provided for our every need. We need what God has provided, and what he's provided is sufficient. Sometimes I even find myself going through life at times, thinking in a worldly way, and that's this, that I don't have what I need to accomplish what he's given me to accomplish. That's worldly thinking. That's ungodly thinking. It's thinking that's unbelief in who Christ is and what he can do and what he has done and what he has provided. There's a vast difference between uh, me, and I'll use myself as an illustration, going through life on a daily basis, facing obstacles and challenges, and then some days are downhill, and it's just, you know, I mean, in a positive way. You're getting a lot of speed, and things are going really well. It's one thing to go through life facing all the challenges of life with the attitude of, what am I going to do? I don't know what to do. I don't have what it takes. I don't have the knowledge. I don't have the patience. I don't have the wisdom. I don't have the resources, and going through life, the same exact life, with the attitude of, I have everything I need in Christ. Everything that God brings across my path, he brings knowing that at the same time he brings that across my path, that hardship, that obstacle, that at the very same moment he has provided for me everything I need to succeed and bring glory to his name. And that's what this book is all about. Paul wrote to these believers, who I think in a very real way, though they knew Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, there was a lot about him and what he had provided for them they didn't know. And in a very real way, like Hetty Green, I think the the believers at Ephesus were in some way living like paupers. And, and, And he still, he calls them saints, and they were faithful. 
They were doing all that they knew to do. They were taking God at his word. But God had a message for the believers at Ephesus. And and his message was this. You are rich in Christ. And you can overcome in the city of Ephesus in AD 64. And the same message is for you and for me today. You are rich in Christ. You have everything that you need to be who God wants you to be. Paul, in another place, writes, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. You see, the Apostle Paul had to come to the understanding in his own personal life. I understand I can't in and of myself, but in Christ, I can. Now, you be faithful as we study this book, because every word is necessary. You need to hear what we're going to preach and study in this book. To know the riches of Christ will allow you to walk as Christ has commanded us to walk.